0: This path will lead you to an unholy place. A cemetery. There the Necronomicon awaits. When thou retrievest the book from its cradle, you must recite the words
1: Klatu verata nictu. Klatu verata nicto, okay. Well, repeat them.
2: Klatu verata nicto. Again! I got it, I got it. I know your damn words, all right? Welcome back, everybody. Um, we're going to make this quick because, well, <laughs> various <Yes>. reasons, <laughs> whatever. This week we Stuffing have things. <laughs> Daniel Harms returning to the show, uh, and we're going to discuss books of actual tomes of magic tonight. Now, I'm going to say up front, I know there's a few of you people out there that are listening that are actually practitioners of magic uh that we've interviewed that do listen to the show i'm sure Saraya will be listening to this episode well, i'm not really worried about Saraya though Saraya's cool well not that anybody who's listening to this isn't
0: cool No. guy gonna... listen to our show easy buddy
2: <laughs> i'm the furthest thing from cool well Saraya, Saraya's had dan on, on where did the road go before yep. so he's gonna mm-hmm. see daniel harms and be like oh yeah i should probably plus it pertains to magic and those yep. things um so we're gonna cover tomes of magic tonight um being that I am not a practitioner of magic, I am very fascinated by the study of it. Lobo, you are somewhat of our, but you I come from come from different schools of magic, so I yep. wouldn't expect you to know anything about the stuff that we're talking about tonight. So, ah. you are, you know, you're like me. You're interested in the educational purposes of it. Sure. Um And Daniel is a scholar of Western magic and uh, magic and Western culture, I should say, which we bring up in the show. So yep. we're probably going to get stuff wrong. Um, give us some slack if you're one of those people. We're not, this isn't an episode of how to cast a spell to turn invisible yeah. to go see other people's boobs Check or anything Check back in like about that. a month. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, but was that out loud? <laughs> I was blown away. I was like, yeah, well, cause I've always wanted to do a show like this covering books of magic. And I thought there was only a few of them out there and I okay. was just like, oh my God, where do we start? There's so me and him were going back and forth. I'm like, and when I want to have you on the show for this, let's talk about that. And he's like, well, let's talk about that. We, we, you know, we finally narrowed it down to a couple of books. Mm-hmm. But I specifically wanted to cover the Necronomicon because, as I say in the show, he literally wrote the book about the Necronomicon. Yep. And we've had people, just as we were doing this, we had someone on our Facebook page say, "Hey, do a show on H.P. Lovecraft because we mentioned it last time. Our last episode, we mentioned something about Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. So it, it all was the perfect storm, and it fell together. So Dan's coming on the show to talk about the Necrocount, the Necronomicon, the uh the hepteron, uh, the Heptameron yep. That's what it is. And yep. the Goisha. The Heptameron and the Goisha are both complete system books of magic where if you go out and get these and they are available for everybody to get, you can find PDFs of them, you can find them all over the place. That if you're interested in getting into some kind of magic, these books are apparently complete systems of magic. So we come mm-hmm. on we comes on the show and that's what we talk about. And as always, we have a good time with them. You know, I, I told him I think this is one of the most unusual interviews you guys you probably do with people. And you know, dance Dan's a great guy, he's a great sport, and I love talking to him. He's very cool. He gets what we do, and he's just a real fun guy to talk to. Um, So that's it. We'll see everybody at the end of the show, go over a couple of things real quick, and uh, see you at the other side. Bye-bye. So, with us tonight, we have returning guest, Daniel Harms. Daniel Harms uh, works at Cortland College, and I preface this up front because he does a lot of magical studies, and the stuff that he talks about here is not, he's not a representative of Cortland College. I got to give you a a little out there because I know you work in a, you're in a college and it's all scholarly and stuff like that. And you are a scholar of magic in Western culture and also H.P. Lovecraft, which all of those things are going to fall into play tonight oh cool and we have you here to talk about actual magic tomes two of them and then one that wasn't actually a magical tome but became a match an actual magical tome for lack of a better term so um give us the dime store tour of who you are because we had you on here to talk about the book of oberon and then we also had you on here to talk about the long lost friend so kind of give us uh the people who are new or haven't caught the show, you know, the old episodes, give everybody an idea of who you are and what you do.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm a librarian by trade. Uh, I started out being really interested in H.P. Lovecraft, uh, the writer and, you know, all his fictional creations. So I got more into that. I actually wrote a book called the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, which deals with all of those different, you know, fictional tomes and you know scary alien gods and all those things I got interested then in Lovecraft's creation the Necronomicon and part of the interest in that was that there were books floating around that claimed to be the Necronomicon and that was something that I was I wanted to examine more um, closely and that sort of close examination led to the um, writing of the Necronomicon files with John Wisdom Gauntz. Uh, my co-author after that i started to work my way backwards in time and said okay well the necronomicon was interesting but what do i know about other books of magic and that sort of um expanded outward and that's how we i got started getting involved with uh the publication editing of books like the long lost friend and the book of oberon and uh a couple of others which are one of which is less well known. That's the experiment in Potence Magna. And the uh and the latest one, which has just been sent off to the publisher. And I think there's a couple of others that are sort of kicking around here from small here and there from small presses. So um that's that's the basics. <laughs> you are
2: somebody that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I follow your blog. Um I've never stopped following your blog. A little while ago, you did a six-part thing on there about the rising cost of magical tomes. So Mm -hmm. I became very curious about how many of these actual magic tomes are floating out there, how many real books of magic, Victorian magic, whatever, are actually out there that are accessible to people. And I was blown away by how many books really exist that are out there. I just thought it was going to be like a couple of books or something like that. There's a tremendous wealth of real magical books floating around out there that people can get access to on the Internet, PDF style, translated for free, etc. It just it just blew me away how much was out there. You know, I'm like, like, yes, wow. (laughs) And then you go around and collect more or less, um, for lack of a better term, magical notebooks and kind of assemble them and put them together. So mm-hmm. you've got the big books, like the encyclopedia, like the ones that you see sitting like some w- wizard crouched over or, you know, like, <laughs> you know, you have wizard. like J- John Dee's books and all this stuff. Because that's how I figured there'd be. I figured there'd be a couple <clears throat> of real ones out there. I just had no idea the amount of old school magical information that's floating around. It but blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And um, when we were when I was talking to you back and forth on Facebook, I'm like, hey, this is what I want to do how many of these 9 million books do you want to talk about? You know, and we had to kind of (laughs) narrow it down because there's just so much.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I Um, I think part of that was, I really want to be as precise as possible. So, you know, if I start talking about a particular book, I want to have looked over it in the past, you know, past couple weeks or something like that, because otherwise, you know, there's, that's how, there's this huge corpus of material and it's really amazing because there's probably more in print right now than there ever has ever before. And beyond that, there's more material being translated from other languages into English than there ever has before. So now we're able to access these huge um, libraries of grimoires that were um, that, you know, we're part of the French tradition or were written in German or, you know, these are all starting to be come into English so that people can actually read them and start comparing them to other sources. So, yeah, there's quite a bit out there and I, I like to keep it manageable <laughs> uh, in terms of, you know, when I, when I want to talk to people about it.
2: Well, I'm not a practitioner. Lobo has dabbled in it and he knows his, his magical mojo is, is far more superior to mine. But I I really just assumed a lot of this stuff was stuff that you'd see, and I, 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 I've, I'm I, sure I've said something before that we started recording, that a lot of the stuff you'd see in, like, hokey magic stores and stuff, I figured it was just going to be stuff by Crowley and stuff like that. I really had no idea how vast and how far back this stuff went. Um I was going to ask you, though, because I want to start off with a couple of the small, well, not smaller books, but uh, before we get into the Lovecraft one, because conceivably myself and Lobo are huge Lovecraft fans and people listening to the show know that. That's one way to put it. Yeah, (laughs) we we could conceivably because you literally wrote the book on it with the Necronomicon files and this like I got your book and I mean, this is like. It's huge. It's a big book. It's like I was like I wasn't expecting a gigantic book to come in the mail. That's like four hundred something pages about just the Necronomicon alone. I was like, this is insane. So I I did learn a lot from it. So let's start with the let's start with the two. I don't want to say lesser known, but let's start with the other books. Um, okay. The Heptameron. Did I say it properly? Mm-hmm. Okay. The yes. Heptameron. Let's start well, with that one.
1: Well, let me actually back up a little bit. I'm going to give the broad picture view, and then we'll, we'll move down to the Heptameron and the gotcha. Um So what, we, what we're going to talk about tonight in terms of the books of magic are two particular works that are set out as complete systems of magic. They've got everything as a part of them. They've got the preparations. They've got the tools. They've got the incantations you're supposed to say. They've got the list of spirits. So they're contained magical works and they're I how-to the, guides for some, the most part yeah they're how-to guides but i want to make some distinctions put some you know context to this first of all these books are both um they're both very much in a judeo-christian um framework there's the ideas that you have you know a you know, God at being at the top of the universe, and underneath him being uh, angels and of of the various orders, and you've got saints, you've got priests, you've got you know you, all these all these sort of intermediaries who then can compel in turn spirits beneath them to um, respond to the magician who partakes of that sort of um, higher you know that higher authority and, and, and establishes himself. And I'm using himself in that way, because generally this was a, um, this was a mostly male sort of practice, but they, he takes that authority upon himself and then uses that to say, okay, well spirit, you know, you spirit should probably do this now. Um, and most of it I would say is actually in terms of the structure is highly orthodox. Um, in the sense of that having that hierarchy and that that ability to compel, which is what, you know, powers the process of exorcism. What makes it different is the is some of the preparations and the consecrations of particular things in particular ways and the use of um, you know unknown and foreign names of God. And finally the ends, which is usually doing something which, you know, if you are an orthodox christian that probably god might not entirely approve of um because that's what prayer is for. <laughs> as in um, a
2: using magic <laughs> yes
1: um, well, there's that there i mean there is a but a lot of it can be you know there are a lot of this what we look at when we look at the the prayers and the incantation this is actually it's maybe even be taken from orthodox sources mm. It may be a prayer that's been repurposed for one of these purposes uh, for, for, you know, for summoning the spirits. The other point I want to make is we're both both of these works are going to be complete systems. They, and they're so you've got you do have your preparations. You've got your circles. You've got your, you know, particular set of conjurations. This is not necessarily true of all the magical works out there, especially not the ones that I've edited in the past. Which is okay. But um they're usually companion pieces. They're what 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 the sources I do I work with are they're kind of more compilations. They're they mm-hmm. they take, say, okay, well, we like this dismissal over here, and I like this magic circle over here, and um, you know, I like this list this this particular spirit, so I'm just gonna put them in this list with all the others. And you know, they're basically Building blocks from which people can build their own operations. That doesn't mean it doesn't have complete operations in it because sometimes it does sure. in terms of things like Book of Overrun. They do have these. But um, so what like we're a, looking at they are like
2: a DD and d player's handbook for the most part, if you're looking to step into this kind of thing bad reference yeah no uh, <laughs> no pretty accurate actually. oh no, gosh we
1: can, well, i'm gonna have to start talking about the player's handbook now and we, like, we, we don't want to go down that route that's as long as it's not
2: that... 4.0 but hey we're over geeking here go ahead
1: <laughs> okay oh you know so <laughs> yes i know
2: <laughs> okay back to I, I, other I, I geeky to
1: stuff road, okay so um let are talk a bit about the heptameron um so this is a book that was supposedly written by Pietro de Bono, who was a doctor living in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, he died in, while imprisoned by the Inquisition, which, as from what I've seen, apparently decided after he was dead that he was actually guilty um, because apparently if the church didn't like you very much, at some, it's for some. In some cases, they would do that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, okay, We're you're you're dead. We're still gonna make sure you know that you're you're not approved of. Um, but uh, it's probably. I'm gonna say it's probably not by him because there doesn't seem to be any any sort of contemporary reference to him as the author. There are links in it to back to um, Greek sources and things like that. Um, he was just a convenient person to put, his, to put um, a name on it. And that's important to understand about these books because a lot of them are going to be written um, by someone who is not listed as the author. The idea of, the, of a magical work having an author is something I think we only start seeing probably around... Hmm, I want to be careful about this. Uh, it it's really became prevalent, let's say, in the 20th century and there's some 19th century examples as well, but you know, generally you want, to, if you have a book like this, you want to attribute to Solomon or Moses or someone along those lines, somebody who has some authority, someone who can take who, the heat. You know, has, who has spiritual. Yeah. And who can who is spiritual, you know, who's known as has spiritual credentials and someone who can take the heat. So, so you don't get blamed for, you know, writing this, you know, whatever book has been actually written. Uh, <laughs> So the heptameron is is as i said this is this is a system it's a one in this particular case that's aimed at working with seven the spirits of the seven days so that's what heptameron means in greek it's seven days and so these are the spirits of the seven days so you go through your lengthy procedure of you know getting clean vestments and consecrating them and getting a pentacle and putting it on your on your breast and drawing the circle and if you if you've seen heptameron circles, or they're particularly notable because they're concentric circles. You've got three concentric circles, and then the middle is divided into four quarters. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty easy way to tell if a work is ultimately derived from the heptameron because it'll have a circle that looks like that. Um, the circle is also notable in this particular case because you can throw you're supposed to put in all sorts of different words into it based on the day and the hour and the spirit you're summoning and the season of the year and all this all this sort of thing you're supposed to kind of build up the circle with all these names of power and if you put the names of power in the circle that's supposed to and then stand it that's supposed to protect you from whatever's outside um now
2: this I'm curious about this one thing I've I've read a lot about magical circles and so forth. From what I understand, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't break the circle or cross the circle because it messes everything up. So do you have to draw these circles around you as you're
1: standing in the middle of them? Uh, it, we don't often get instruction on how exactly people did that. Okay. Uh, but I think you would, that's what you would effectively, you would either have to stand in the middle or you would have to draw most of it. Okay. And then walk in and then draw, you know, draw on the then rest behind the circle. You. Okay. Yeah. And I want to say that this is not necessarily... Um, the circle is not necessarily inviolable in all cases. Um, there are some situations in which you'll find magic circles where there's actually sort of a path to the middle
3: mm-hmm.
1: that's actually drawn in as part of the circle. You might also get um, circumstances like in which, a say, a sword can be extended over the circle. And um, in, in order to, say, you know you know, push something to a spirit or something along those lines, okay. or Okay. threaten a spirit. But, um, yeah, the circle is supposed to is supposed to not be broken.
2: I'm looking at a, one of the hept- heptamaran circles right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, I'm looking at it. Actually, I'm looking at a PDF of the book and it, it's, it's been translated. That's the other thing. I'm going off on a side tangent now. Now, with translations, you did bring up on your blog at one point about how accurate, how hard it is to get some of these books translated from their native languages into English. Is there Mm -hmm. ever a situation where things are lost in the translation because language being what it is doesn't convey properly? Like I'm looking here, it says something and it's got the word always, but it's spelled A-L-W-I-E-S. So. <laughs> so
1: that's, that's, that's not something getting lost in translation. This is, a, this is an early uh, modern. I think this is probably from the, s- something like the 1655 edition. Most likely okay. we're spelling spelling hadn't been standardized yet. Okay. So you're going to get all sorts of weird variant spellings. And one of the things that I have to do when I'm working on a book in a lot of cases, because I'm writing for uh, Llewellyn, which is a popular publisher. I go through and I, Basically, take out all of those. Like Oberon would have been unreadable if practically, if I'd have to, if we'd left in all the, you know, variant spellings on everything. It just, people, you know, people don't read that way anymore. Yeah. In terms of being able to sound things out in, in their heads, they, 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 people see words by sight and they just kind of take them in all at once. And now it'd be very difficult.
2: Having said that, because yes. I know what's going to happen. I know we've got I, we've got a lot of people that listen to the show that are practitioners of magic and they're going to send us all kinds of email. They're going to send me messages. Hey, you got that wrong. You got this wrong. Yeah, we know. Don't worry about it. Yeah. but we know if I get something wrong
1: too.
3: <laughs> whatever.
2: <laughs> I'm not worried about it. But it, since this book is a complete system and the other book is a complete system, I just know that there's people that are going to be out there saying, hey, I want to learn to do this stuff. And you can find PDFs of this book all over the internet. I'm looking at one right now. Now, having said that, if somebody were to go and get a copy of that book, even though the pronunciations are spelt differently and stuff, would a in theoretically in a magic sense? Where I'm going on a ledge here? Would that affect the process of casting a said spell or something like that? If the if something was lost in the translation or is it? This is where it gets weird. Is it the intent behind it yeah. that makes the difference, or no, or or am I just overlooking all of this stuff and just you know move on?
1: You know I it's difficult for me to say something one way or the other, because I know that people approach these books in different ways. Gotcha. But what I'm, what I'm finding out from, from my translation and my, you know, reading manuscripts and things like that is what you are looking at with regard to any particular book of magic. Like, you know, we've gotten used to this standard corpus for the most part. A lot of occultists had, at least until say maybe the last 10 years or so where, you know, this book, like the Septameron, is taken from a manuscript that is just one of an entire tradition of manuscripts that's floating out, around out there, many of which are lost, let's face it. You're, we're not going to find those anymore. They were destroyed. They, you know, we just don't know where they are. Any number of things could have happened. Uh, so when we talk about is, if you get one of the words wrong, is that going to ruin the spell? I think that there is, you know, based on the hist- the lengthy history of this tradition, based on how questionable a lot of it is in terms of, you know, how it was passed down and how, you know, maybe somebody who wasn't entirely conversant with the language may have copied something from someone who was. It's really hard for me to say, "Oh yes, you must do ex- Everything okay. exactly as it appears in this book. Otherwise, you know, horrible things are going to happen to you. As it would uh, in the I Necronomicon. Think, <laughs> I think that a lot of, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot of flexibility in actual practice. And generally, as I understand it, the worst thing that would often happen to people would be that nothing would show up. Just doesn't, and then work. they would, yeah. Um, it's,
0: it's been my experience.
1: Yeah, it's very, you know, there was a lot of leeway, and there's a lot of different layers to it, too. I mean, both of the books we're talking about here, the Heptameron and the Goetia, uh, tend to have a good number of series of incantations. And they call upon all sorts of different, you know, all sorts of different holy names, all sorts of, you know, sorts of angels all sorts of you know events in the life of jesus and all these other things so it's kind of like building up all sorts of layers so even if say you got one of the names wrong the idea would be then you have 10 other layers there and hopefully the spirit will respond to one of those if you don't (laughs) if that doesn't happen you can go out and find some other incantation for and use that one after the first one and you just keep on going on and on with that
2: okay so, back to the heptamerion, of hepta, whatever, heptosis. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> heptosis! <laughs> um, is there any example of a kind of spell that would come out of this book? Because we're talking about spiritual holy magic here, much like the long-lost friend. Um, mm-hmm. These appear to be along the lines of... of prayers or something along something to do with those Mm -hmm. is there any examples of a kind of spell you could give us that would appear in this book and what this book would be used primarily for as a magic book
1: it's very tricky to give an example of a spell the whole thing's a single operation a long lost friend if you look at that you have very sort of discreet little um uh recipes so you know that are just a few lines this book is meant to be done as entirely as as one this is one huge operation with the list of spirits that follow let's uh, i'm going to take a quick look at the spirits of the air of sunday um so i'll read this out Their it sounds to, like work <laughs> <laughs> their <laughs> nature is <laughs> to procure gold gems carbuncles riches to cause one to obtain favor and benevolence to dissolve the enmities of men so hostility there to raise men to honors to carry off or take away infirmities So you've got these spirits, and basically what you do is you slot them into this overall overarching framework, and you say, okay, well, I really want to, you know, I want to do something about this illness, so I'm going to go to the spirits of Sunday, so I probably do this right on a Sunday, and then, you know, I basically ask them for that when they arrive. Hmm. Sounds about right.
2: So this primarily, for the most part— appears to be it's it's like a holy book for the most part you're dealing with spirits angels so forth and etc so let me move on to the next book which okay appears to be something completely opposite am i correct Mm -hmm. in assuming that this is primarily about dealing with demons
1: uh you would be i would say you would be correct with that yes so we have both sides of the
2: fence here, people if you're not sure if you like chocolate or vanilla we're giving you both options (laughs) However, we are not what responsible. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably books out there for that. But hey, if you do something wrong here and you screw up, don't hold us responsible, okay?
1: <laughs> so tell us about this one then. Okay, so this book appeared first in the 17th century. Um, it's part of a l- longer tree. It's called Lemegeton. And what this deals with is it gives the names of and titles and information about 72 different spirits. And we can be pretty sure that these are infernal spirits because we start seeing some, let me see if I can find an example of this. You do start seeing occasionally some sort of name show up. That's, um, that's definite Asmodi, Yes, that's so Asmodius, So the, that's a, that's an indicator that these are, you know, these are not, you know, uh, good spirits or angels necessarily. Although I should also point out that a lot of these books are very, they get very vague about this topic. They're not going to necessarily come out and say, this is a demon. They're going to say, oh, this is a spirit. And then sometimes you can tell by the name, but sometimes they just leave it vague because that, you know, people are, may be more accepting if they don't know quite what's being called up. Um, so you've got these 72 spirits. Uh, each one has its own seal, and the magician can go down through this list of spirits and say and look for you know what they want to have accomplished do they want to be good at rhetoric do they want to learn about the magical properties of stones do they want to um know about things what's going to come in the future do they want to find treasures you know what do they want to obtain and they can Pick the proper spirit, and then they take the seal and they draw and they you know engrave it on the particular metal, which is sometimes gold, which is why I think some some of this is less popular than it would be otherwise. There are some spirits that require gold as part of their seal, and then they go through this ritual procedure in order to summon that particular spirit. Now I want. To put this in a broader context, too, I think it's important to to do that because people have really fastened on to the idea that these, there's these 72 spirits of the Goetia, which is true for the manuscripts of the Goetia, but it's part of a broader sort of tradition in which magicians would just put together lists of spirits. I think there's a lengthy... There's probably... Depending on how you want to break it down, I think there's at least two or three in Oberon, um, uh, which are just, you know... Giving people lists, the idea is just to put together a list of spirits that you can call for various purposes. And magicians just love to, you know, add on to these lists and, you know, because that just gave them more and more options if they, you know, were running into a problem.
2: You make it sound like it's a phone book for the most part. I mean, that's, it's, that's kind of what these both sound like. It's like, yeah, they, <laughs>
1: they are in some sense a, a, a sort of mystical phone book. Yes. It's,
2: it's more like Tinder spirits, yes. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to be calling is up and for a hookup or something. Well, so there are people out there that that'll do. This. Yeah, this this you should be used to us by now. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> now the Goetia is also part of uh, the Key of Solomon, which is another. Which it's like, are are both of these books part of that? Is this like a greater series of books or something?
1: Okay, um, I will only say that what I've learned about the Key of Solomon is that if you hear that something is the Key of Solomon, if you it's hear not. there's a manuscript out there, <laughs> it's all... No, you have to go look at it. Yeah. You have to take, you know, because a book entitled Key of Solomon could be pretty much every, anything. Right. And, for example, if you look, if you have Oberon... The second section of that, the briefer section that that set you know the section that's in the back, which has a lot of you know shorter charms and things like that, that was bound and on the binding was entitled it was entitled the key of Solomon so well you know, yeah, so <laughs> it's I don't think the these do not necessarily come from a single sort of er manuscript that's out there which you could which we can reconstruct as for, you know these are These were books created at different times by different people taking, you know, creating and reassembling material to, you know, make something that they thought was going to be effective for them. Or in some cases, um, especially with the later ones, that they just wanted to sell people. There's some books out there that are just, you know, they were just put together for a market for collectors, um, assembled out of various sources. And, you know, it wasn't because people were practicing it as far as we can tell. It's just because they they people would pay money for that book and they they could put it together
2: now having you having researched this stuff cuz this is what you do you you go out like when you did the book of oberon you you got access to some pretty hardcore books that are hard to get to how often do you find when you look at these books you'll look at something and you go well that seems right but that doesn't seem right he borrowed this person borrowed something from there or something from here how far down the strain do you find where the source material becomes polluted um, does that question make
1: any sense? <laughs> I think the, the pollution can I, I think what you're the assumption behind your question is that there is a, you know, there's a sort of this tradition out there and what we have, you know, what has come down to us has, has been a pollution of that tradition. And I'm not sure that's necessarily something I agree with. Now, I'm going to say in a sense, it is correct, because, say, if you've got names of power let's say they're in Hebrew or they're in Greek and the one of the people down the line doesn't understand Hebrew or Greek, they may copy those incorrectly. And so that's, you know... Yeah, you might start it starts to, see to people, wave off. That's yeah. where it starts to become problematic. Um, I've actually, in the book I just sent off to the publisher, which I'm not giving the name of because we haven't decided on it yet. That's fine. Um, I'm sure
2: I'll bug you when it comes there out. <laughs> are,
1: there are actually sequences of holy names that if you look at them and you think about it a little bit you say hey wait a minute they're just giving the you know the names of the letters of the hebrew alphabet here and you realize yeah that's are those actually holy names or is you know or what what exactly is going on there so there is that sort of thing that occurs but i think there's also at the same time innovation going on people are you know they try out various you know recipes or experiments they they alter them and so the question is you know are you take are you want to look at it from the sort of perennial tradition where you know all that's come down to us are you know the bastardized remnants of what came before or do you want to think of it more as a science where people are tinkering with things and altering them and trying to find you know to make improve the methods and I think it would be possible to look at this in this tradition in both ways, and I think if I start trying to do either one of those, it gets really complicated really quickly. I see. Um, yeah, because you, I mean, because there's clearly you, you'd see manuscripts where the people just didn't care who wrote them. They're you know the the circles aren't even you know circular. Uh, and you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about something like Remorum Verum," where you've got an oval or something like that, in it, you know, in a, in a square or something like that. That's that's different. It's just like it's clearly supposed to be a circle, but it's kind of lopsided. Um, so it's so there is you know, the question is then you know, once again, there are, there are clearly mistakes, but there's also. You also want to leave open the possibility of innovation. I think there's, for example, in sixteenth to seventeenth century, one of the things we talked about last time was fairies, fairy magic. Yep. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. is something that just appear seems to appear for the most part out of nowhere. I mean, it's got some earlier influences, but people were really interested in contacting fairies, and so you have to look at that and say, all right, so where did that come from? Is that you know does that indicate that you know, this is the de- degeneration of a tradition, or is this people saying, you know, there's these beings out there, we want to contact them. Uh, You know, we've got, let's see what kind of technology we can assemble to do that spiritual technology in that sense. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to say one way or the other, you know, in terms of what, what, whether, you know, how much this is, what, has this been corrupted? And if so, how much?
2: So, now both because we're gonna we we're getting at the halfway point here it's crazy how fast we've gone through this. Um, <laughs> now both of these books are able to be found. You can go on Amazon if you want to buy them. Uh, there's reprintings of them. I'm assuming correct.
1: Yes, um, I'm going to. Both of these are available on the Esoteric Archives website mm-hmm. um, by um, which is assembled by Joseph Peterson, which is a great influence. Or. Uh, uh, reference sorry uh joe has also written his own edition of the lesser key of solomon Uh, well not written you know he's edited together from various manuscripts um there's another edition of the Goish out there that was assembled by alistair crowley um taken largely taken from the work of mcgregor mathers without attribution uh but that one is is not quite as uh scholarly and there are some you know there are some Mistakes in there. So I I would generally recommend Joe Peterson's version. Uh, the heptameron is just floating around In a lot of different editions. I think it's It has appeared in the fourth book of occult philosophy by Donald Tyson from Llewellyn He's got an annotated version there, but I'm not sure that Any particular edition of that one is is more I would recommend one of those more than the others Yeah.
2: And they are both, as you said, complete systems. So somebody could get one of these books. And if they wanted to get into this stuff, they could just say, All right, start reading and, you know, and then do their research from there.
1: Although I should point out the Lesser Key of Solomon, if you want to do that, does involve, may involve getting some gold and also involves a lion skin belt.
0: Oh, got to have that.
1: Yeah, that's and insane. So,
0: you
1: know, oh, it's a it's a big deal. And some of the, the literature I read from people who are you know working with this um, tradition, they are like, OK, should we get the lion skin belt? Do we need this?
2: Sir, are uh, you a mage? No, I'm a pimp. <laughs> pimp. <laughs> all right. So we're going to move on to this one because we can conceivably spend the rest of the show just talking about the Necronomicon. Yes, Lobo, this is where you're going to feel free to jump in <laughs> and shine. By all means, go right ahead um it's been no secret whatsoever actually this is really funny because we b- before i even set this or as i was setting this up one of our listeners went on our facebook page and said you need to do a 75 hour show about hp lovecraft and i'm like well we've got something in the works so <laughs> being as how you quite literally wrote the book on the necronomicon with the necronomicon files let's start with um for anybody not familiar with it Explain what the Necronomicon initially was and where it came from.
1: Um, Well, the Necronomicon, you'll hear various rumors out there floating around about places where the term Necronomicon appeared before um, the 20th century, but I've never seen a convincing reference to them. Um, Necronomicon was a creation of the Horror and fantasy writer H.P. Lovecraft. It first appeared in his uh, short story "The Hound" in 1922. As you know, Lovecraft was very big on illusions. So, being able to say, "Well, you know, there's a creepy thing going on that this per- that my character is investigating," but then he starts referring it back to other things, you know, other mythologies, other um, books that he that he's read in the past and you know and so that sort of he uses that to build up the dread and what the necronomicon gave lovecraft was the ability to have a common source that he could refer back to in terms of oh yes and i was reading in the necronomicon about this horrible thing and this i didn't think it was true at the time but now i'm looking at this what's in front of me and that reminds me of the necronomicon and I i may be getting it over my head here Um, and it also helped that Lovecraft was also referring to it in multiple tales. So whenever, in a sense, whenever he would refer to the Necronomicon and to a reader who is reading through his work, you know, in the pulps where they were published, that reader might think, oh yes, he was talking about the Necronomicon, that story I read last year. Oh, that was a good story. Oh gosh, I don't know what's going to happen in this one because, you know, that w- because you start bringing in you know sort of this dread by association into into the into the present story, and what made things even more confusing is that then Lovecraft's friends started getting in on this game, and they're like, "Well, we'll make our own mystical tomes, and we'll all talk about them in our stories." and And so people started to wonder, okay, so are these are these real and uh, weird tales? Which is the the pulp where he was. Mostly getting published for, for, well, most of his stories Pretty, at the time. I'm
2: say almost everything, I believe, at yeah. the time came out through Weird Tales. That's the yeah, only one were, he wanted
1: to work with. That's why. There were, there were, I think there were a few others. I don't want to give particular titles right now because I'll get them wrong. But um, <laughs> he, was working, he did work occasionally with, I want to say he worked with maybe Astounding or something like that. Don't with, quote me uh, on was, that.
0: He wrote uh, Reanimator. The Herbert, yes, Tale that of was, Herbert West, that was for Strange Brew.
1: Yeah, that was that was a very, um, I think that was a very low-circulation magazine. But yeah, yes.
0: he hated that story, too. To his dying day, he hated that story.
1: And yet he wrote it,
0: and it got so it published. Good. It was,
1: it's such a good story,
0: and it's a funny story.
1: It's and, just, but, uh, Yeah, I, I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, but that does bring up that Lovecraft was really, you know, he was not afraid of injecting humor into these stories like these little humorous asides that the reader might or might not get. And Herbert West, you know, it's pretty evident. But um, in some of the other stories, he might refer to, say, Clark Ashton, who is the high priest of Atlantis. Yeah. And yet. Yeah. And that that's his friend Clark Ashton Smith, who is also writing similar stories. Yeah. So we come to the end of Lovecraft's life in 1937, and um, there's still, you know, so now people are starting to find that, they're starting to appreciate Lovecraft more. He never really got a whole lot of love from Weird Tales. I mean, Weird Tales would publish his work, but he was, I don't think he received a cover illustration during, you know, his lifetime. Um, And then they suddenly realized, oh yeah, this guy was really good. And so it starts this fan community that, you know, also wants to play with the same um, you know, with the same concepts, and they want to write stories about them. And so there's this sort of underground movement to kind of, you know, perpetuate this this uh, literary legend. Um this became even more prevalent as hardback copies of Lovecraft's work were finally issued. Um, I think there was one a couple of very small press publications lifetime but then arkham house started putting out books there was a book for uh, servicemen during world war ii of his stories and so this made more and more people aware of his creations now what happened after that is that basically lovecraft was no longer around to tell people oh yes i just made all this this sort of thing up which is what he would do when people would write him letters about it during his lifetime and after you know by the time you get to the 70s, people really start to, um, you know, and you start to get this um, occult revival, and people are starting to get interested in fantasy and science fiction, and they start, you, you know, they're becoming more mainstream instead of this, you know, the province of a, a small group of fans. And that's when the Necronomicon really sort of takes off. So at this point,
2: people. The people that were in the know knew it was a fictional book, but people started saying, "Hey, let's try to capitalize on this." And this is where other
0: writers that were that were in direct contact with Lovecraft. Oh yeah, it popped up. That were allowed to. He said, "Yeah, by all means, build this."
2: Yeah, they all they all kind of worked together, and they were all friends behind the scenes. So they all started dropping stuff here and there in their books and stuff. But the people that were that weren't in the know were kind of like, Hey, is this a real book for the most part? And then you had people that were trying to like cash in on it, which, um, what was the, is that what led to the Faraday hoax or the Faraday, the Faraday review of it? Is that what we're going with it?
1: I'm going to have to go back and check the Faraday review. I think that was actually during Lovecraft's lifetime. It was yeah, just something it, submitted to a very, a very, yeah, it was submitted to a very, a small town newspaper it's In fact, it was such a minor item that I think I went through that newspaper and didn't find it when I looked for it. But one of my friends went back, who's, a, who's more thorough than I am. It's like, okay, there there it is.
2: Well, people were starting um, to look for it, like, in book buying clubs and stuff. Has anybody got oh, yeah. a copy of the Necronomicon, blah, blah, blah.
1: Oh, yes, yes. It would turn up on, um, when booksellers had their specialized list of, you know, desired items. They, these books would sometimes show up there. So...
2: At what point? Um, oh, we lost Lobo. He'll jump back in. <laughs> um, so then people actually started coming along and like saying, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna," because it was it was pretty much open domain at that point, wasn't it? There was no, um, nobody really seemed to have any kind of uh, like a, 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 a hold on it or anything like that.
1: Well, there. There were some efforts to do that. Arkham House, in particular, um, tried to assert that it had ownership of Lovecraft's fiction, and therefore could decide. Uh, August Derleth, the you know one of the co-founders of Arkham House, could then decide who who could participate in the Cthulhu Mythos and who couldn't. But I think that there was never much of a ground for that. And I think by about 19, by the early 1970s, um, Arkham House was telling people, you know what, you can just go out and write whatever you want. That doesn't mean that everybody knew that necessarily, especially if they were, say, trying to just, um, they thought, well, we, we're just, go-. they didn't know that they should check on this. It's like today, you know, some people know what copyright law is and yeah. some people don't. And, some and there's people, people that
0: just ignore it completely.
1: <laughs> there are some people ignore it Completely, there's some people who don't ask questions because they don't want to know what the answers actually are. And uh, so this is what kind of set the stage for some of these Necronomicon hoaxes that came out in the late 70s.
2: So but it, it, by the 70s, it was pretty much public domain, no? Or did somebody have the rights to it still?
1: Oh, gosh, that is an incredibly complex I question. Think, okay. <laughs> the majority <laughs> of it was public and domain. And I derailed it. Wait, was it? <laughs> <laughs> um a lot of it was published i mean it's it's just a really bizarre question because it, at some point lovecraft gave weird tales only the first north american publication rights for his work and this would have been defined by writing on the manuscript you know first north american rights only or mm-hmm. something along those lines and so but if you don't have the manuscript or the original typescript that was in this case that was sent to weird tales you don't know that. It doesn't make it easier that U.S. copyright law does not require people to record transfers. Uh, you don't have to write the copyright office if you are, you know, if you transfer, like if someone dies and they transfer the copyright to their descendants. There's no there's no authority to do that. So you have so like up a, a shotgun. A lot, you, there's a whole lot of works out there that we don't know, you know, who quite who owns them. And it's it's a major problem in terms of getting things reprinted or finding right. rights um so the question of what's public domain and what's not is very tangled i'd like to say most of it is but you know don't I, rely I, on that if you're, a, if you're going there's a um, adaptation or something like that
0: there's a website that is it's it has all of lovecraft's work like everything even of his poems mm-hmm. and it states emphatically that they're within the public domain as well as if you listen to LibriVox, all of the readings of oh God. from the white shit I there some of them are horrible. There's some really bad LibriVox yeah. ones out there. <laughs> some of them are really rough. <laughs> but before they start saying it, they say these that these stories are within the public domain.
1: So uh, unless well,
0: it's changed recently
1: All I like, I mean. The only real way to tell whether something is in the public domain is whether it was public before nineteen twenty three. That mm-hmm. material is public domain. Everything else is kinda is can it depends on a whole bunch of things like whether somebody sent in a letter in one particular year to the copyright office or the previous year and whether, you know whether particular, you know, you can copy the ways you can copyright a magazine, it's just there's a lot of really bizarre stuff down there, which is why I don't want to say <laughs> emphatically. You can, and you don't send in something, you know, you don't send in a letter to the Copyright Office saying, oh, yeah, this is public domain. It's just something that happens and it isn't really recorded someplace. I would right. encourage people who want to do this, they, you know, the US Copyright Office has been, you know, helpful when I've queried them about things. And uh, so if you want to make sure what you're working with is public domain, go talk to them. So- um
2: let's move on then before we get too murky into all this.
1: Oh yes, please.
2: Actual first (laughs) real printing of when somebody said, I am going to make the quote unquote Necronomicon. And this is the actual book of the Necronomicon magic. This is the spells. This is the incantations. What was the first printing of that? Would that be the L is F the Necronomicon from 1973
1: or no? Only in the sense that it didn't have spells or incantations in it. It's um, the L is F. is from 1973 is mainly just um it's just it's mostly just calligraphy now i've actually had people suggest to me that maybe the calligraphy is you know an encoded text of some sort that the author put in there but it was really just the whole idea behind that was just to have something that went out there that that was out there that was supposed to be the necronomicon that to was make money off you of. know yeah. to make money off of it yeah. and that you know that would just have be impressive to look at
0: yeah, it's a companion piece. If you have all of Lovecraft's works, then that would be something to have to just further the mythos. Like, I have this. It's a it, translated copy of the Al-Azif. Wonderful. And, the, and the
1: fact the that they called it Al-Azif, which is, I should make clear for readers who may just be, or listeners who may not be that familiar with Lovecraft, is the supposedly the original Arabic title, according to Lovecraft, yeah. of the Necronomicon. I think the use of that title indicates that they were really um they really want to emphasize you know play to the hardcore fans they weren't trying to you know fool people with this because otherwise they would have probably gone with the, the necronomicon as the title
0: right so
2: the, the next printing that come along would probably be the simon printing from was that 79
1: 77 or? okay and there's a there's a i think there's a few ones that came out at that time there was the um well, Geiger's one. Geiger's came out at about the same time.
2: Oh, I forgot uh, Geiger had one. That's right. Yeah. Geiger's
1: is cool compared to yes. the rest of them. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. Simons is rubbish. That is absolute trash.
2: Well, it's just – well, Simons was weird because it wasn't – it was just a whole bunch of stuff cobbled together. And it was like, here, here's a book of magic. Go. Take it. Yeah. Buy so, my book. Said, make
0: money.
1: I'll <laughs> say this is, this is the um, – uh, I'll, I'll give a sort of nutshell – perspective on the simon necronomicon uh this came out of a magical scene that centered around the uh, warlock shop or magical child in new york city mm-hmm. in the 70s um i think it's important to note that for people who say well you know this was they say it's a you know it was a book found by two monks who were going around and stealing books from all sorts of different libraries which i should say actually did happen yep. and that this, this ended huh. up in our hands and we decided to publish it one of the things they never mention is that Magical Child was selling the DeCamp al <laughs> They were selling this book, and they've got it in their catalog. They're selling it, and they're also saying, oh, yeah, I, our translation of this is coming out soon. Which pretty much, um, <laughs> I think when Simon, right <laughs> some of you may have, have seen Simon's book, Dead Names, or, you yeah. know, Is that that the the one with like the pentagram on the
2: cover? looks like a Motley Crue record cover or something.
1: I think it is. Yes. But but (laughs) this is one thing. This is one element he never mentions in the book. He never mentions that. Yes. Somehow, you know, that the fact that they were supposedly found the Necronomicon, they were translating it and it was, they were very surprised by this. And yet they were selling another edition of the book in the bookstore. You think they would have. That would have been notable. You think someone would have brought that up and said, and yeah, said, but it's part of the allure that. and the
0: legend. Yeah, but it. they yeah. should have pulled that one first. They should have pulled that. They should have said, no, nope, this one's no longer available in print, this is what we have. It's the new translated version. Sorry. Yeah, but, at least give it some kind of backstory. Why, though? If people are buying it, they're making money on it. Why, you know, it's it, it, because anybody, <laughs> it's all bullshit at that point, anyway. This is garbage. <laughs> Dude, I don't think anybody cared. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> cares now. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: <it was. laughs> so so what basically, okay. So what happened was that, as best I can put it together, and this is just me reconstructing what happened. This is this is actually runs counter to what Simon, the editor of the book, would himself say about it. But you know, he can he can speak for himself. It seems that Simon wanted to put together. Um, a style of pagan ceremonial magic. Now, what we were, remember what we were talking about with the previous grimoires yeah, is complete that systems. they're they're complete systems, and not only that, they're very based in the Judeo Christian hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and one of the um, sort of oddities of modern occultism is that so many people in modern occultism do not define themselves as you know conventional jews or christians you know Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of (laughs) often it's it often it deals with some sort of pagan faith so then so the question is okay well you've got this all these you this huge amount of technology out there ranging from the long lost friend of the heptameron to the goetia but it all it's all talking about god and angels and devils and some people who want to do magic as part of their faith don't really, aren't really too fond of dealing with that. So Simon's idea was, let's put together a system of pagan ceremonial magic. Let's build it from Mesopotamian material. And he actually wrote articles on this particular topic. And you know let's, so let's, let's assemble something that people can actually use. So at some point, though, he was apparently writing this up. And then this layer of Lovecraft got put on top of it. So now you've got, you know, Oops. Cthulhu and other beings, you know, being inserted into the book as Cthulhu or something, or Cthulhu or whatever you want to say it is. Somebody missed um, a memo somewhere, didn't they? Yeah, well, this, but it's not... It's cle- about making I'm not money! Sure. <laughs> I'm still, even after, after having studied this for quite some time, I was not entirely certain about, you know, how this came about. Why did they decide this was a good mix? And I think... I don't think it because it looks spooky necessarily. It looks spooky. The interesting thing. We're buying
0: spooky things then.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it it looks spooky. It was like, all right, well, there's people out there that are in the Lovecraft that want this out there and this stuff already exists. So let's just transpose this onto this and add some spooky sauce and and boom, here's a book. Spooky
1: sauce. I think the interesting thing about this is that um, I couldn't give precise figures, but it comes out it was issued by Avon. The same people who put out the satanic Bible <laughs> and the, and the, the, huh. n- the number of copies sold are kind of comparable. I don't want to say they're, you know, they're the same by any means, but they, you know, they're in this, you know, you're talking about so many millions of copies and many, many public printings and things like that. Mm-hmm. And what I think, unfortunately for the putting, I think the, whereas the Lovecraft ties did sort of make the book much more popular. Mm-hmm. They also, uh, pretty much kept a lot of people from taking it seriously i mean you look at the satanic bible and just think about the immense influence that has had you know on starting various spiritual groups that have been very influential and most people who describe themselves as satanists you know go back you know take their cues from the satanic bible whether they're they they believe in it or they you know they're trying to get away from it a lot that's kind of like the key text hmm. economicon has sold comparably but there are people out there who practice Necronomicon spirituality. Oh yeah,
2: but, yeah. There's an yeah. ancient. There's the Esoteric Order of Dagon, which is both a real thing and a not real thing at yes. the same time. You know, and is an
1: interesting the, part of this, like the Necronomicon? Yeah, yeah. And they show up at my Masonic hall. We're
0: gonna have a problem.
2: <laughs> well, no, <laughs> this they're actually. Well, the Esoteric Order of Dagon, the actual organization, they're very upfront about it. They're like, yes, we just base what we do off of H.P. Lovecraft works and we are in no way associated with. And they say something like the excellent organization over at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society or something like that. They make no qualms or hide anything about what they do. And they're like, if you'd like to join, you know, here's an application, blah, blah, blah. But this is what we do and this is what we practice. But that's no it's it's no weirder than like the whole concept of the guy who created Wicca or the stuff that Crowley puts out there and stuff. You know,
0: it's mm-hmm.
2: they're upfront about it. They're like, yeah, we know. You know, yeah, that this- there
0: is a difference though. <laughs> Some of the witchcraft that's practiced, even you know, maybe not necessarily in the United States, they do have their roots in paganism. Yes. You're talking about a religion that's it's like saying you're a Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> so- I, well, again, that's a thing too, though. So it is now, yeah, sure.
3: You know. <laughs>
1: But I think <laughs> I think you're both getting at, at, at something here, which is that, you know, these are faiths that people, you know, people have internalized that they make part of their practice. But there is something of a difference. And I'm not saying that it means that, you know, it's a reflection on the quality of people's spirituality. But th- there's a there's a line here that's being crossed mm-hmm. when something that is fictional that has come out out of fiction becomes, you know, the basis for somebody's spiritual practice.
2: Well, we did interview uh, a guy that created a religion, based, a magical practice based around Batman at one time. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, you know, <laughs> it has to do yeah. with intent. Anything can become a magic practice. There, there's also a certain amount of, uh, you know, mental. Y- you have to go a bit further in terms of, you know, m- you know. I don't know how to put this. Yeah, I'm not going to create a magical system your, based off of a velvet Elvis painting. Harder to yeah to, to be able <laughs> yeah, to you know do magically with Elvis or with Batman or something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um. And I think it's a, from you know a scholarly perspective, it's interesting to note when that transition occurs and think about how it occurs. But that doesn't. I'm not going to sit here and tell people not exactly. To do
0: that.
1: Yeah.
2: Sure. That's fine. That's cool. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that because if you did, boy, the hate mail would probably come. But well, um, I mean,
0: here's the thing. You can do whatever you want, and I'm not going to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do. But, I mean, it's pretty clear that you should not kill cats or, you know, mm-hmm. rip the heads off of chickens in certain company. <laughs> There's Certain things you just shouldn't do because it's a faux pas. <laughs> summoning yaksithoth is one of them i mean yeah i mean if you're going to ru- i mean who was it? I, there's a uh, there's a special that had i listened to it a couple of times a year cuz it's on my phone and it had uh oh jesus it has uh del toro's on it and poppy easy brightman's on it Mm-hmm. And there's there's a bunch of different guys that are on it, and they're all talking about how how Lovecraft has inspired them. And at one point, uh, Del Toro goes, it's probably not a good idea to try and summon an old one into your living room, but if that's what <laughs> you want to do, by all means.
2: Yeah, it's the same thing I just said at the beginning of the show. If you go out and buy one of these books and something happens, we're not responsible. So mm-hmm. we're just telling people where to buy the gun, don't shoot it.
1: And we also don't advocate doing anything mean to animals, because a lot of these early modern medieval books have, well, (laughs) Well. they have, unless they're wasps, but a lot of these books have very, came out of a time when the uh, views of animals and how they were treated were very different than they are today, so, yes.
2: (laughs) Well, let me ask you one more thing before we kick you off the show here. But the synopsis of it was is the Necronomicon was a fictional book that more or less just people just created to become into a real book, and now it is a real thing. And you hear it mentioned everywhere. It's an in, it's in evil dead. Uh, Stephen King has made references to it. There's uh-huh. all kinds of nudges and winks towards the Necronomicon throughout popular culture everywhere. Um, but I wanted to ask you one thing, though, because this just popped up recently. I'm not sure if it was in your feed or someplace else. Your book, um, "The Necronomicon Files," was banned in Texas prisons. Yes,
1: as was the long lost friend. Uh, Actually, not shocked by that at all. No, but it is odd. Like why specifically well, to well, this you, book? If you look at okay, I'll, I'll give you some. What I I can't speak for the Texas prison system, nor would I want to ever. Good, for but. You. I think there if I were going to identify based on the criteria that I've heard the two the problems with those two books, our Necronomicon files does include nudity for one picture. Mm. And it also, if you're talking about the long-lost friend, it includes a method for convincing a judge to, you know, to you know, give you a favorable judgment in court. Uh Uh-huh. So if I were to pick think of two reasons why those two books might be you know might have been banned it would be those two but then again I yeah i'm I'm
0: thinking no i'm thinking that's not why at all
1: (laughs) well the necronomicon itself the simon necronomicon is permitted to to you know for people to read in in the prison system sure yeah
0: well it's because it's scribbledy gobbledygook that's that's why
1: (laughs) though i i mean i could i i'm not sure that's you know if you are looking at you know Looking at the principles there, I'm not. I'm. I'm not entirely sure I would do that. No. Even though I, I. don't. I do as a librarian. I don't want to say, "Hey, um, you know, don't this book should be should be banned." But mm. I think there may be inconsistent application of the criteria on some of these. Which, yeah,
2: you do kind of got a new drawing on page seventy four, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. All right. All
0: right sure. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I was gonna keep that later?
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. I wish I had something that was really that was you know much more impressive as a reason why the book would be banned but um
2: yeah there's yeah, nothing that's... there's no spells in here it's just it's more or less just a history book mm-hmm. and a book about debunking i can't understand that it's i could understand the necronomicon being banned in prison because they don't want people practice maybe practicing magic or something and pr- I, don't, I don't know but there's mm-hmm. nothing in here that i could see I don't, I don't know. Maybe they're afraid the- of well, scholars. I
1: mean, what I'm going to refer to particularly with the Necronomicon is the passage. And this is the one point where I think they may have gone over the line, uh, you know, with regard to how to treat people. It's got the um, sword that must be used to kill seven people. Hmm. Well, you or know. As as part of one of as it it says this is part of one of our rituals. Now I'm not going to say that those swords don't exist in actual historic documents because they do. Sure. Um yeah, swords absolutely. used to kill people, you know, executioners' weapons and things of that sort were often seen to have a lot of power. But well, that would that blood. was the <laughs> that was the that was the one phrase part of the Simon Economicon where I said, you know what, okay, they went you know, okay, a lot of this is a lot of this is, is i think is kind of silly that but you know i can see people using the practice i can see them wanting to put something together but maybe you shouldn't be telling people to find a sword that's killed seven people that's probably that's not not the sort of thing you if well i right. can't find one i guess i'll have to make one yes yeah, <laughs> guaranteed to get you into where you want to be <laughs> All right, and I'm it. wondering if somebody actually did that, but we're not even going to get into that. Perhaps. Right now. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we've had you on here for about an hour. This is the part of the show where I, you know, give you a chance to promote what you're doing, what you have out there. If people want to go find your books, um, I've got pretty much all of them. I just don't have the book of Oberon because honestly, I haven't been able to afford it yet. But uh, mm-hmm. where can people find your books and your blog and all of those kinds of things if they're interested in this stuff?
1: Well, my blog is at danharms.com d-a-n-h-a-r-m-s.wordpress.com. And you can actually find on the right-hand column on that, you can find a list of um, a link that goes to um, buy my books and you can click on that and find all my books. Uh, But uh, if you are looking for particular titles, there's the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, which is available um, both in print and electronically. There's the Necronomicon files, uh, which is available from Wiser. I think that's also hasn't, we've got an ebook out for that now as well. Um, there in terms of magic, there's the long lost friend, which is from Llewellyn and also the book of Oberon, which is from Llewellyn. That is, I think the only one that is not um, an ebook right now.
2: And you've got some stuff in the works as you were talking about, but you're not willing to talk about that just yet. I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, I think I've. there's, Hopefully, in the next year, you're going to see a small press um, issuing of a manual of a British cunning man who his name was Bellhouse. So you're going to come um, back on for that, right? Yeah, I uh-huh. can certainly come back on for that. Yeah, Bellhouse is a fascinating guy, and I really need to write up. A, I've got a like presentation coming on the spot coming up. On here. <laughs> I, I have. A, I just I have a presentation coming up, and I have to write up. You know, go back and delve into Bellhouse again and see. You know make sure I've got all the facts straight on him too. But um, so that's, that's going to be exciting.
2: Well, Dan, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You are one of our most liked guests that we have on the show. And every time we have you on here, we get all kinds of people that write to me and say, wow, this guy's done this and that and et cetera. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're very knowledgeable and you're very fun to speak with. So thank you very much for coming on here. And I will definitely be bugging you again as, as soon as whatever you have next comes out.
1: Okay. Sounds good. Thanks Dan. Thank you. Welcome.
2: Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com On the right side of the page you'll find links to our archives as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459 Yes, we do listen to all of them or if you want to talk to Lobo directly you can call 203-212-9975 Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your Call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. Your roadmap to the strange and unusual begins with the Travel Oddities podcast, the only paranormal travel show in the universe. With Harley, they say it looks like a horse. This thing's an ad unless somebody get a really early release of Star Wars. Then I, I'm calling bullshit. Amy.
1: I will get rid of my gums. Stop! You're like Microphone Hitler or something.
2: And Brett, would you look better shitting in public as a naked man or as a werewolf? Find them on iTunes, Stitcher, or at TravelOrities.com. Your adventure awaits. And that was Dan. And when Dan's next book comes out, we're going to bug him to come back on here again. Yeah, because I'm a jerk. No, you're not at all. I think he, <laughs> I was surprised because I had completely forgot. We haven't had him on here for a while. We've only had him on twice. A bit, bit. Yeah. And the bit first time we had him on, there was a good length of time before we had him on the second time. So either he's really smart and remembers his interviews because I completely forgot that we brought up the topic of fairy magic or he went and went back and listened to the old episode or something like he's that. He's pretty smart. Yeah. Yeah, because he brought up the whole thing about fairy magic, and I was like, oh, man, mm-hmm. I forgot. We talked about that. And then he was like, yeah, we did. But mm-hmm. um, he's a real—he's a really cool guy to talk to. Sure is. We probably could have talked to him for a couple of hours. The thing mm-hmm. is, is, we only had him for a limited amount of time because you had to go off and make dinner for
0: the younglings. Yeah, while they're still <laughs> upstairs right now eating food and I'm sure making a mess. And grandma's already tried to call me. <laughs> so anyways um
2: a couple of things i gotta thank dave who's uh one of our listeners he's somebody that i works with he left a voicemail uh dave i did get the voicemail thank you i appreciate it i'm not gonna play the voicemail because it's a little personal it, it's well yeah it just touches a little bit too close to personal life and everybody knows i try to keep that away in some regards but he you know he was like yeah i hope your legs better and he thanked us for listening he um he drives truck at night when he's out doing deliveries, and he listens mm-hmm. to our show, and he called us up and said, thank you for putting all these episodes out there. And he hasn't
0: crashed yet.
2: No, not at all. But he's a really he's a really cool guy. He comes in. when I, I haven't seen him lately. I haven't seen him since all this stuff happened before my leg and before the promotion that didn't happen and all those kinds of things. But he called and up. And no motion. um And then we had another voicemail, <laughs> which I'm not going to play this episode, where we had a very effeminate-sounding, angry, Japanese-Korean- Asian Wrong. guy of some no. kind called and left a very oh. angry message of some sort. Dude, he can um, bench press a Buick.
0: He's gonna crush you. And he
2: has no neck.
0: I'm not I don't know who it could have been.
2: I don't know. <laughs> I don't, we don't know a lot of Asian people that sound very effeminate when they're angry in oh, Asian. Dude, so.
0: I you know what? I don't know. That's don't not know.
2: for me. I did not say
0: that. I, I'm not part of this. And
2: also, it we're coming up on this is the usually the time of year where I try to send out our annual application for the Illuminati to mm. um, to find out why the Illuminati won't let us
0: join Taco Bell Illuminati. This year. it's
2: the thing I've, I'm piecing together. So I'm a Taco Bell, and there's all the Taco Bell Illuminati stuff. Which good on the Illuminati because I'm, I'm 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 a fan of Taco Bell. You know, most mm-hmm. of us are a fan of Taco Bell since we're saying it wrong to nope. an individual in Kansas no. who's named maybe Jason carry on my wayward son. Um,
3: <laughs> people, <laughs>
2: people are going to be so sick of hearing these inside jokes,
0: you
2: know, um, that anyhow, I, I'm beginning to piece together. There's like this code that I'm beginning to find on on the sauce packets for taco dot, dot, dot bell. And I, I think I'm piecing together some kind of phone number Um I don't know. I'm just, I'm working on it. I could be crazy. I could just Google how to call the Illuminati on Google, which everybody should at least try. Sure. Why not? So we're going to see what happens. You're Hmm. clueless right now because I don't want to say anything because I don't know for sure if the hell this is going to work or not.
0: Oh, nice. It's great.
2: No, I don't want to say it because there's the curse of the show where every time we talk about something, it ends up falling apart. So I've only got part of this. Very true. And I'm going to put that right there as I shuffle through my notes on my desk. Nice. So, anyways, yeah, last episode I was really out of it. Um, I did my best to try to make it through it. Um, I, some people told me they couldn't tell. Other people were like, dude, you were, like, messed up. Yeah, yes. I was I didn't, I didn't. was on pain meds, not really serious once, but I also wasn't getting a lot of sleep because of the leg. Mm. And I go back to work this Friday. So we're not going to do a show next week. We're going to play a best of next week. But um, this week, I mean, the exact opposite. They've got these new Maxwell House coffee pods for the Keurig. That are like they just say caffeine. It's got three X and a little red bar that goes all the way up to the top of the box, and then they got another. They're amount, not that strong. Um, yeah, I, I still think Death Wish Coffee is stronger. There is Death one Wish out there. Tastes good though. Death Wish does taste well. These Maxwell House ones aren't bad, but Death Wish what? does taste better. Um, and the Odin Blend uh, that they make, mm. but I'm not a fan Val of the Aula. Odin. Blend. Yeah, the Valhalla. I think it's the Valhalla Blend Death Wish Coffee. Those guys really good. should just sponsor our show with the amount of publicity we've given them. Them and Taco Bell and the Illuminati. I would gladly to- take
0: anything from Taco Bell. Are you kidding me?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We are saying that wrong. You know that, right?
0: Yeah, well, whatever. So.
2: But uh, yeah, that's it. a best of episode next week. As always, I have irons in the fire trying to put stuff together to get a show out next. We will have another show as we always do. The problem is, is I've got so many irons in the fire. It's like, who do I pull from to get on here next?
3: Mm.
2: We got this weird thing where we either have a shit ton of guests that I have or to go no. to, or we have nobody. <laughs> He's you family, it, baby. He's it's, f- it. it's exactly what it is. So and Ivan Stang, I'm still trying to get a hold of, we're still trying to work out with Ivan Stang from the church of the Subgenius So we can get him back on here about the process of creating a religion. Hmm. But uh, that's it for now. Um, Shout-outs to everybody on the Facebook page. Again, we've got more people joining all the time. And I've noticed all of the new people that have been joining have been very active on the page, too, which is nice. Because yeah. we get a lot of people that join and then just sit off the sidelines and watch all the crazy stuff that gets posted. So... True. You know um the the tide pods thing we're going to try to Ugh. run it into the ground.
0: <laughs> <Ugh. It's> Natural <an laughs> selection at work I'm hopefully. thinking of
2: making tide jello shots, you know, oh. where you have like a Somebody little Somebody already did it. Tide jello
0: shots? They're not jello, they're shots.
2: Yeah, but you can make you can make the jello one blueberry in the one shape and then the orange in the other oh, shape. And
3: Stephen, then if you, you want to go
2: the full route you could actually the full make a, Monty. the full Monty, the full tide thing Monty. This is gonna be one of those episodes where people listen to like four years from and go, What the hell are they talking about? If you're yeah, in the right, future listening to us, people eating Tide Pods is, is a thing right now. There's a guy that actually vaped them too. But you hope he dies. Yeah, natural selection. But you put a little That's bit it. of cheesecake on the bottom of it and then you put the jello shots on the top of it. So you've got the white on mm. the bottom and you got the two colors, and then you actually could eat those.
0: So mm. anyways.
2: This is uh, an overcast ca... Talk
0: much? <laughs> You're going to love it.
2: Holy crap. I've heard you on your caffeine adventures. Those are
0: deep cuts, though. I don't think those exist anymore, so let's keep it got that them. Way. I've Oh, still good. Got them. That's great.
2: Well, no. Side tangent, caffeine-oriented. Dan, who was on the Christmas special, tell me a story.
0: Oh, a little brother?
2: Yeah. He was like... Hey, I, I want to get your back episodes, but I can't download them. And the same thing I tell everybody: either A, give me a place to upload them to, or we'll work it out where you send me a thumb drive, and I'll give you just about everything that I can dig up. Very poorly formatted, whatever. I, I did it for—I did it for somebody else out in California, who's at the moment name escapes me. Sorry, sweetie, I nice. forgot your name at the moment. So, Stephanie, was it Stephanie? I don't remember. Stephanie Quick? No, not Stephanie Quick. No, 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 oh. no. But doesn't it lives in the bottom end of the state? Oh. But um so he's like, Well, here's a thing to upload. So I've been uploading up back episodes <laughs> and I'm looking through them and I'm like there's part of one episode, another episode's missing, there's a rough edit. It's like this folder that I threw all this crap in.
0: Just rubbish.
2: So it's like, if yeah, if you if you want this stuff, find it. Going back again, well you were really whacked out on caffeine. I don't remember you were drinking Moxie and something else, and it was in one of the outtakes and you were talking at seventy five miles an hour and it was hysterical. And I can't remember what it is now. I don't remember what episode is. I'd love to be able to find it. Anyways, this is an overcaffeinated caffeinated Rojan. I'm the men doing better. Peace out from Detroit. Say something stupid, Lobo. <whistles> Not going to say anything, are you? <laughs> <laughs> you dick.
3: <laughs>
0: Peace out, folks. Your picture was still there. The counter was still going. And then the counter just stopped. And I'm so like, you just
2: didn't leave me hanging
0: there. You're just, you know, because no, like, you're supposed the- to say you're supposed to say something stupid
2: Lobo or something like that. Oh, no,
0: dude, it literally just nothing like nothing.
2: Do you, do you want to close the show out now since I've stopped the music and everything? Sure. Okay.
0: I don't know. And that's it. <laughs> Yeah, dude, you, know what, what you know i just i want to live my life i want to die the way i live my life covered in nacho cheese and whatever just so done is this where we say peace folks bye bye I
2: can, I, can i play black sabbath now
0: <laughs> play whatever It's okay, dude. We're here for you. Yeah, I know. God damn it! I'm gonna die of an aneurysm, a yeah. nacho cheese aneurysm. Just whatever. I am Patrick Star. That's my life. Starfish loves you. Hot dog water. Okay, we're done. Bye bye.
3: Damn it.